Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Vern Wheelwright. Vern is a professional in the field of futures and foresight. He's also an active exponent of the one-person business. In 2006, Vern was awarded a PhD from Leeds Metropolitan University for his research in the application of futures methods to individual lives. That research led to the development of the Personal Futures Workbook, which leads individuals through the same processes used successfully by major businesses. The workbook was tested in workshop settings and then made available to the general public as a free download at Vern's website, www.personalfutures.net. And Vern is also the author of It's a Future, Make It a Good One. And he has a new book, Small Business Foresight. Vern is also an active member of our professional association, the APF, and is a fellow of the World Futures Studies Federation. Welcome to FuturePod, Vern. Thank you, Peter. It's nice to be here. Vern, question one, which I like all my guests to start with, is for them to tell their story of how they became a member of the Futures and Foresight community. So what's the Vern Wheelwright story? Well, I think I should start with the fact that I have been in small business nearly all my life. <laughs> my first business, I was seven years old and I had a load of holly in a box on a sled that I took around through the neighborhood and sold piece by piece. Uh, so my first business venture just lasted one day. But after I got out of the University of Oregon, I uh, did become involved in a few ventures. But basically, my life has been in small businesses. I have worked for other small businesses. I've been in some larger ones as well. But my own businesses have been small mostly just me. <laughs> I, I had one very successful venture with uh, one partner. I had another venture with three partners. Uh, a little less successful, not because of the partners, but really because of a crashing economy <laughs> just uh, gobbled us up. But I was in my 60s and I decided that I was going to go back to school and get an MBA. It was just something that I'd wanted. Yeah. So I went through all of the hoops to, uh, to get into the school in the first place. And then when I got in, I took a class. I had, it was with Wendy Schultz. Yeah. And it was World Futures. And I knew that I had found home. <laughs> this was the information and the tools that I had wanted or needed uh, all my adult life. And so I, here I was ready to go on social security and retire, <laughs> and I was just starting school. It was a marvelous experience. 
I could see that the methods worked. One of the things that kind of astonished me was that people in large businesses were very willing to talk to all of the students in their interviews. But at the end of the interviews, they would see, but you, you can't write that. You can't publish that. I don't want the competition to know what we're doing here or how successful it has been for us. So that was the framework of the whole program for me. Then at the end of my uh, two years of school, uh, my, I think one of my very last assignments, Peter Bishop asked us all to create a personal plan for the next 10 years. Well, I did that. I, I did it and I got a good grade on it, but I was not happy. It just didn't fit. And I can't really explain why I say that, uh, that it didn't fit. The methods worked, but there was something that it was difficult to make these methods work for an individual. So the University of Houston had a relationship with Leeds Metropolitan University and very specifically with Graham May. Yep. So I signed up to go into the PhD program with Graham as my advisor and supervisor. Uh, I went to Leeds, spent a week there learning methods, talking with Graham. Again, a really excellent experience. When I came out, I was to go home, do my research, write it up, and submit it for my PhD. Keep in mind, this was around 2000, yeah. 2001. Google didn't exist yet. <laughs> I think they were a couple of years later. I, yep. I was using a, an outfit called Dogpile to do my research on my home computer. My home computer at that time, we really didn't have internet availability to a great degree. So a lot of it, I was doing over the phone line. I went to the local university, University of Texas uh, library, and I started doing research there because they had access to databases and lots of information that I really couldn't get to on the web. I was just really encouraged by the people at U University of Texas Library. And so I progressed on from there, but then I, I needed to start talking to people. If I was going to make these methods fit to people, I needed to start doing some research there. So I had lots of research from experts, from books, on methods and so on, but I started talking to people. And I started talking to a group of people at a local hospital. It turns out that the hospital had a mailing base of members of about 4,000. Wow. And so the, uh, the woman who was in charge of the program helped me. I created the questionnaires. They sent them out with their monthly newsletter. And pretty soon I had responses coming back. Mm. piles of response. And I don't remember how many right offhand. I think I still have all of those <laughs> questionnaires in a box in the attic. But it was enlightening. And I learned a lot about how people were living their lives and how they, they really were not living 
lives according to the way that we were teaching futures methods at the university. Uh, they, they were not concerned at all about steep, the steep forces. The only way the steep forces impacted them as far as they saw it was when the economy crashed. And, and as you know, that happened about every 10, 12 years. So the steep forces were just not helpful at all. And I started looking at the forces that, that were in people's lives and re related more to what they were doing, their, the activities in their life, their finances, their health, uh, all of the things that, mm. that just make up the daily life, the things they have to take care of day in, day out. Yeah. Those were the forces in their lives. And so... I started with those forces. Uh, I reverted to Shakespeare and the seven ages of man. <laughs> man. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> a lot of us have memorized those. Yeah. And I took those and then I went to psychology and there was a lot of research there. I used that research. I, so I came up with stages of life. Well, the stages of life actually gave us a framework to see where our lives were going. Businesses don't have that luxury. No. Businesses have uh, a series of steps that they go through as, as they grow, but really they don't have that advantage of seeing in 10 years, I'm going to be uh, go from being a teenager to being a young adult. And then I'm going to, uh, in the next 10 years, raise a family. I will become aged and eventually go to retirement. And we have a series of steps that everybody goes through, just like a caterpillar becomes uh, a butterfly. All the stages that animals and insects go through, so do we. Mm. So that became my first book, uh, which is it's your future, make it a good one. Right. I put that out as a paperback. And uh, as you mentioned, I put the workbook online as a free download. And I was, I, well, I'm stuttering, but I could not believe how many people downloaded that book. Wow. I could track more than 100,000 people in about 60 different countries that downloaded that book. And then for some reason, the company where I, where I had my website changed the way they were keeping track of their statistics, and I could not keep those statistics anymore. I just, I lost that advantage. And then later on, they moved me over to a, a different company to manage my site. And I've, I've started from scratch in the past year. So I'm, I'm rebuilding my website, and I would invite your reader listeners to visit the site and give me suggestions as to what I can do to make this a more productive site. Sure. Thanks, Ben. Question two, Vern, is the one where I encourage the guests to, to talk about a, a favoured method 
or tool or framework that is central to their practice. And in talking about the method to explain the use of it um, at a technical level, at a practitioner level. So for people who want to use methods can understand a bit more than just what the tool is, but how, how to use it, what the challenges are, what the opportunities are. So what do you want to talk about then? Well, I have two favorites and I use them both uh, throughout both of my books or all of my books really. Uh, the first would be the uh, futures wheel. The futures wheel just helps me figure out where things are and then to project where they may be going. Yep. And I, I suspect that everybody is using the futures wheel, but of course I got introduced to it at the University of Houston and Wendy Schultz was a master <laughs> of the futures wheel. She would start out with one circle and expand it into half a dozen circles and then expand out. And she would, she would start out with a huge piece of paper on a board at, or sometimes on a, a whiteboard. And she would have circles running from page to page to page, yeah. <laughs> sticking the pages on the wall and referring. And she never got lost. She always knew where she was in all of those futures wheels. I never acquired that capability. But if you ever get a chance to see Wendy present and using the future wheel, it's a, it's a marvelous experience. Yeah. But again, I use it to find out where, where things really are. It helps me so much to, to see that, okay, this is related to this, this is related here, but they come together up here uh, and then they breed, yeah. <laughs> so to speak. Uh, it, it's a tool, Vern, that I find that it, one of its real benefits is that it takes out of people's heads and it gives some structure and form to the things that, that are in their lives. Yes, exactly. And uh, so, and that's, that's probably why it's my favorite tool, but I do have another tool that I use a lot. And again, I use it, use both of them in my tool, in my books, and they overlap. And that is the two axis matrix. I just, uh, I have found the two axis matrix gives me a different set of structures and it's, it's a moving tool so that it, it takes me in directions and helps explain the forces that are at work more than the, uh, the wheel does. So can you maybe explain the, can you explain the axis just so everyone actually understands what, what, what the axis is? <laughs> in my life, it's just two lines on a piece of paper. Yeah. And each line represents forces uh, increasing or decreasing depending on the direction. Right. And that way you end up with four quadrants because you, you run these two lines across each other and form a cross. And uh, you start with the lowest energy uh, at, to the left side and to the bottom, at least that's the way I set mine up. And with increasing energy going up and off to the uh, right. And 
that helps me so much in in explaining a force and how it is worked working that is i mean at one level that is the gbn you know the old gbn cross sword scenario process where you take two forces you cross them you have one increasing one decreasing and it creates four worlds exactly now i i think probably my foundation is based on using impact on the horizontal and probability on the vertical and that kind of lays out any scenario rather neatly into four quadrants and then you can take you can take almost any any pair of forces and yeah. put in that same pattern and you find out that some things just don't work very well they're just you put them together and they don't tell you anything yeah. and other times you put two forces together and wham you've you've just struck futurist gold yeah so those those are the two futures tools that that i use the most great Vern. thanks Question three, Vern, it's the one where I talk to Vern Wheelwright, citizen of the world, about how that person is making sense of the emerging futures. So how do you see the world? Um, and again, you can place this in whatever time frame or context makes sense, your lifetime, you know, the general, you know, whatever again. So you can set the context, you can set the time frame. How are you making sense of the emerging futures around us? This is a challenging question, and uh, of course, futurists are expected to have answers about the future. <laughs> and I read the book Generations, which I thought gave me some really good insights. But I guess the, the things that I see coming on the horizon now, we have a world of confrontation. And of course, in this country, uh, the, the confrontation is led by our president, but I can't, I can't lay it all on Mr. Trump. We've got confrontation going on around the world. A lot of it is based on religion. Uh, a lot is based on, uh, on race. A lot is based on money uh, or lack of. So uh, wealth and poverty are uh, two ends of the same scale and the same with the others. So that's kind of the, the framework that I'm seeing. And I, I understand that religion has been an area of confrontation since it became a part of the world. When people created the religions, they tended to try to move people into their religion so their religion could grow. Uh, and they resented other religions because they infringed or they believed differently. And that believing differently about anything seems to be a base problem in relationships around the world. And 
we've had a period of uh, time generationally where it seemed like the world was coming more and more together. And I, I feel that it is coming more and more apart. And I think part of that is relates to the fact that if you go to uh, any place where young people are, everybody is looking at a cell phone. They're not talking to the person <laughs> next to them or across <laughs> from them. They're looking and reading their cell phone. I don't know. Maybe they text each other across the table. But I think that this is an invitation to creating problems in our society. Now, I'll, I'll get off of that for a, a moment because I think that climate change, we discussed in the year, in the 90s, the problem of climate change and the problems that it was going to bring to the world. And of course, lots of people thought, oh, we'll just invent our way out of this. Yeah. I don't see that happening. The, I felt that the key to solving the climate change problems was bringing people close together. And we were doing that, but it's, that seems to be going astray. So climate change to me is a, is a serious problem. We're, we're confronting the possibility of the end of the world because we are not willing to take care of the world that we have. And maybe that's what happened to Mars. Maybe, you know, it's just a, a big sand, a pile of sand and rock and hardly anything there. But that could be a scorched earth too. Another area is uh, technology. Now technology brings us wonderful things, but we go through struggles to get there. I'm aware of automation that is coming into uh, into being now in on the web, particularly as I was working on trying to get my book published recently. I had been through the same process with CreateSpace, which was part of Amazon, but has been moved over to Kindle or KDP, and now that system is reliant on technology so that hmm. when I submit uh, my book there or almost any place else, it goes to a computer, not to a person. Hmm. If you don't get the cover of the book to exactly the right proportions, the cover gets uh, rejected. The process that I'm going through to produce a book has become considerably more complicated. Now, I understand, I'm in my 80s. I'm not that proficient on a computer. I have always felt computer proficient, but I understand that the generations come up behind me and understand a lot of things that are happening that I don't. So maybe we will educate ourselves right on out of this problem. I think that in the case of artificial intelligence, that is exactly where we are headed. We will learn, we will cope, we will deal with artificial intelligence and the younger people 
will have an advantage. I, I wonder at the excitement of the community that is creating artificial intelligence, because I wonder if they've looked in their mirror and asked, where is my job going to be yeah. when artificial <laughs> intelligence takes over? What's interesting is that a lot of lower level jobs that are treated as lower level now, because they are handled by people, assembling stuff, uh, uh, turning valves and, and moving equipment and making things happen in a, an industrial area, a lot of those peoples are still going to have their jobs. Yeah. And I, I'm wondering if some of the people in California <laughs> and other <laughs> areas where we are developing the new technology, uh, if they shouldn't be looking very carefully at their futures. Yeah, there's certainly an awareness that um, you know, previous previous technological waves have replaced manual work, but that this wave is possibly going to replace knowledge work, and there'll be you know, potentially another another level of disruption to people whose jobs have not been disrupted to now. And of course, there there are some a lot of things that are happening. Uh, that we see changing the future, uh, cars that drive themselves. Now, there's <laughs> there's a lot of interest. There's a, uh, a bit of controversy. And I think that I'm a person who I've always enjoyed driving a car. When I was a teenager and got my license, I've enjoy I enjoyed driving. I enjoyed driving long distances. I still do. I got involved in auto racing when I was in my 20s. Uh, and it was an important time of my life. But I've always enjoyed, loved and admired beautiful cars. I think we're going to have beautiful cars, but I think that we probably won't own them anymore. Somebody mm. else may own our cars. We may have, for a while, we'll go through a transition like uh, with uh, Tesla. Tesla is providing cars that have the capability to do most of the driving as long mm. as you're on a marked highway or marked streets. I mean, I've, I've heard it said that, you know, before the car, the horse was, there were people who loved horses and there were people who used horses. And it's said that the car probably did more to, to rescue horses from the first task because people who still love horses still still can ride. Um, I wonder whether the love of cars, again, like the love of horse riding, will continue. But the service coming from the car might, might be the thing that I don't need to own a car to have a car service. I think that we're going to head into an era in time when... Uh driving your own car is pretty much outlawed unless you're off uh, yeah. way off of the paved roads. And the reason for that is that in this country, we're killing about 40,000 people a year with cars. The number of people who are permanently maimed as a result of an auto accident is, I have not seen good statistics on that. No. But you know that it has to be a bigger number than the number of people who are killed. If we can put cars on the road that do 
all of the driving safely. And maybe we kill 100 people a year with cars. That's quite a, <laughs> an yeah. improvement over 40,000. And that's just in one country. So I think that I think it's going to happen. Uh, I think that Elon Musk is going to continue to be a, a driving force. And I think that his philosophy uh, is well founded that, yes, we're going to have some people who allow themselves to be killed because they've turned on the car and let it drive itself. Uh, yeah. It's not perfect yet. But there's no doubt in my mind that it will be. And when that happens, uh, <laughs> they'll take our driver's licenses away and uh, trust the cars. <laughs> yes, that's true. Thanks, Lynn. Question four, Vern, is one where I ask you to how do you explain what you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do? You know, that is probably the most difficult area for me to explain. I've, I've explained a lot of what I do to help individuals understand the future and futures methods. I am a very strong believer in futures methods. I believe in the scenario side of futures methods. I think that it is, it's a wonder that nobody figured it out <laughs> sooner. But you know why? And that is because fortune tellers, fortune tellers still were operating on shops on streets in Portland, Oregon, when I was in college and for some time afterward. No. They're not all gone. It used to be that every morning in the paper, you could, uh, you could read what the future was going to be in your horoscope. And most of that has disappeared. And I think our profession can take credit for that but, <laughs> uh, to quite a degree because people believed that there was one future and you yeah. just had to find the right person, the right sorcerer, the right fortune teller that could tell you what the future was going to be and specifically your future. And it was an industry. I mean, it was huge over the centuries. And it was in the 1950s and 1960s that futurists started breaking this down. And the big thing was breaking it down and agreeing that there could be more than one future. And once they got across that hurdle, and that's one of the things that I do explain, is that need to get across that hurdle and understand that more than one future is available. As soon as you allow two futures, then there's room for more. Yeah. You, can, you can have as many possible futures as you want. And this is what has opened the door for futurists. I just don't quite know how to explain further uh, my very strong belief in our methodology than the, the rules that allowed people 
to believe that there could be a future, that they could change their own future. And I, I tell people in my workshops and uh, interviews and whenever that changing the future is not a big deal. We do it every day. Now, if tomorrow you get on the phone or the computer and you make an appointment with your dentist for a month from now or your doctor make, makes an appointment for you for a year from now, that's changed your future. Maybe only one hour out of the next week or an hour sometime in the future, but you've changed your future. If you make a plan to take your family on vacation next summer and you buy airline tickets and you make reservations and all those things, you have changed your future. Because if you weren't going on this trip, you'd be at home mowing your own lawn. <laughs> so we can change the future. We do change the future. And once we get people to accept that the future is flexible, that we can change the future, then they are ready to understand futurists. And that, of course, was the title of your first book, wasn't it? Because you introduced this notion, I think, because along with the idea of the future being open, is also this notion of the preferred future. Or if, if the future is open, then can you create the one for yourself that you want? Yes. And that becomes easy once people accept that the future is flexible, that it is not set in stone. And, you know, I grew up at a time when that's what people believed, that the future was pretty well set in stone. You just had to figure out where the future was going to take you. So we futurists have changed a lot in the world. And uh, I think that we should be proud of it. We're still not large numbers, but at the time I was at the University of Houston, uh, the estimates of the number of futurists in the world was in the low thousands. I don't know where it is now, but I've been working this past week with emails to futurists and others, and I've got a lot more than a thousand futurists <laughs> in my emails. Thanks for that. question, Vern, I thought you might want to talk to the listeners about your new book. Well, I'd love to. And the truth is that the book on small business is very much like the my first book, It's Your Future. It's Your Future is aimed at individuals and how to think about the future, how to plan for the future, how to make a plan to achieve a future that you want. Small business foresight does exactly the same thing, except that it's all in a business context. And so you have uh, one, one set of forces uh, in the life of an individual. You have a different set of forces in the course of business. The, the one most in common is finances, because individuals have to deal with finances in their personal life and businesses 
no matter how small or how large, have to deal with finances in their lives. And of course, you read in the paper, I read this morning about a, uh, a person who started a very large business and because he didn't keep track of the finances, it's bust. Hmm. And unfortunately, our universities are encouraging young people to go off and start businesses and move fast and break things. Uh, they're starting to find out that maybe it's better. Well, I don't know if they accept this, I, but I think they are starting to see that sometimes it's better to slow down and build solidly. And that's, that's kind of what I encourage here. But in small business foresight, I'm recognizing that a lot of businesses are only one person. In this country, and just in the United States, there are about 25 million businesses that are one person businesses. Now, in the 90s, when I was, uh, was operating my export business, it was kind of unusual. People never thought about it or talked about it. A million dollar gross sales was a big deal. Well, I was a one-person business, and I was doing uh, about $6 million in gross sales uh, every year. I wasn't making that much profit, but uh, it's still, we were fed well. So an individual with a computer can just do amazing things. It would not surprise me that in, maybe even in my lifetime that we will see a one-person unicorn yeah. business. One person hitting a billion dollars in gross sales. Now, that sounds impossible, but it sounded impossible for business, big businesses to, or for small business to grow into big businesses that became unicorns. So uh, we'll see. Uh, it depends. I think it depends on how long I live. <laughs> but that's the, that's the tenor of this book. And basically, both these books follow just what I learned at the University of Houston, Clear Lake, the basic tools of a futurist, how to look at the future, how to explore the future. And that, I think that's an area where people need the greatest help especially from futurists, is how to, how to come out of the shell that we all grow up in and reach out and see what the possibilities are and spread out and accept those possibilities and then pick where you want to go for your future and recognize that you can take, you can start into the future and realize that you're on the wrong path, that that, that path isn't going to work. Yeah. Change paths. You're not locked in. It's your path. It's your plan. It's your future. And you can do this in, in your own business. I've done that. I started a business that I thought was a great idea. It didn't go anywhere. <laughs> I had to close the business and go to work for a car washing company, which allowed me to travel around the world and to seek my next small business. So it's a, what we as futurists are doing for individuals and for business is opening the horizons, allowing people to see that there are more 
than one future out there, not confining ourselves to the best future out of three or four, but that there is a whole array. Look at the whole world and pick the future that fits you for what you want and for what your capabilities are. And recognize that you you live a full lifetime. You, you get out of college, say it's 22. That should not be the end of learning. Unfortunately for some, it is. But I believe that people should learn every day of their lives, all of their lives, and get get the maximum out of life, whether you whether it's in your personal life or whether it's in your small business. Thanks, Vern. On behalf of the Future Pod community, Vern, thanks for taking some time out to talk about your life and your approach to futures and good luck with the new book. Well, thank you, Peter. This has been a, a real pleasure and I'm looking forward to uh, listening to more of your podcasts because I really have a lot to learn from my fellow futurists. Yeah, we all do, Vern. They're all terrific. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.